today, Russ Walker. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. It is a little obtrusive to have this big old thing up here. This is, for those of you guys who are new, this is not at all the pulpit that we use, but um, we're doing this new series, and I just want to um, tag along with what Logan mentioned about the Little Country Diner. It is, this is what I love about doing the legacy offering, is being able to actually do tangible things to make a difference in our community. And and so there's a lot of things that we're looking at doing externally for painting the whole building outside and inside. There's a lot of design elements. And so we're going to need everybody's help to go in and for eight hours on Sunday after church to really try to redesign and, and do that. So I hope you'd mark that and be a part of all of that. It's going to be fantastic. All right. Last week, we started a new series um, that we're calling Life in the Balance. And what we're doing is that we're going through the book of Romans, um, which is a, a book in your Bible in the New Testament after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. And we're doing this because for the past 2,000 years, God has used this book in very distinctive ways throughout generations, and almost every generation has seen revival as a result of that. There's been really tangible things that God does when we have the revelation of what God speaks through the book of Romans. And there's a guy by the name of John Calvin who was central to the Protestant Reformation who said this about the book of Romans. He said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to help him understand the entire Bible. And it's just so true because the book of Romans is the handbook for Christianity. Every major theological issue is addressed in the book of Romans, which, by the way, tends to be the reason why so many people struggle with the book of Romans is because it can be a little bit complicated because it deals with all the isms. It deals with um, all the big, the, the big stuff in Scripture, all the theological issues. Um, but God has used this book over, over the last 2,000 years to literally change history. When you understand the impact of this book, um, a guy by the name of Augustine, maybe that rings familiar, he gave his life to Jesus because of the book of Romans. Uh, Martin Luther, because of the book of Romans, he actually started the Reformation in 1517. And John Wesley, he started the Wesleyan revivals in 1738 because of the book of Romans. There's a, a, a famous Swiss Bible commentator. He said it this way. He said, every great revival in history that ever started can somehow be related to this book. And so my prayer is that as we go through this book together, as we study the book of Romans together, that God will use it in your life and in my life and in the life of our church to, just as he's done it time and time and time again for generation after generation, to shift people who are stuck in the rut, to shift people who have the ho-hums, to shift people who are frustrated, to shift people who are hurting, and to start a revival then in our hearts too. And so I want to encourage you. As we're going through the book of Romans, you have your Bible, whether it's a physical Bible or you can get it on the app on your phone, to be reading it for yourself as we do this. Because what I'm going to do leading into Easter is that on each Sunday, we're going to go through a chapter a Sunday, and so you can kind of get ahead of me and um, where we're going. And so last week we looked at Romans chapter 1. And if you've never read the book of Romans, Paul doesn't give you kind of a nice little slow ramp to controversial issues. He actually throws you very quickly into the deep end of social and theological controversies by dealing with these topics of justice and mercy. And I think culturally speaking, those are to the, in the forefront of what's happening in our culture. Every single day, we see these issues of justice that are penetrating our, our headlines. And so I think it's just it's difficult to talk about this. 
Because when you have been hurt, when you've been mistreated, when you have been abused, the thing that every single one of us want, we want justice. We want the other person to pay for what they did to us. And the reality is that they should pay. But there's another side of this as well, because when you have something in your life, when you, when you have a secret in your life, when you have something that you're so ashamed of, when you have something that you wish time travel was invented so you could go back in time to stop yourself from doing the, the worst mistake of your life, when you have that secret sin in you, there's something else that you want, and that is you want mercy. And so we have this tension of justice and mercy that's so prevalent in our culture. And like I said, it's not easy for us to talk about these things, but they are in our headlines every single day. We're watching it play out in culture before us. And so on one side, we want justice, but on the other side, we want mercy. It's complicated issues. But this in Romans chapter 1, this is one of the topics that he talks about. He's talking about this issue of justice and mercy. He talks about the issues of God's wrath. And the issues of, of, of godlessness and of wickedness. And the thing that I want to remind you again, we talked about this last week if you were here, that one of the things you need to remember when you read the book of Romans is that Paul is setting up this book as in a courtroom scene, which is the reason why I have this really obtrusive counter up here, to give you this image of a courtroom. Because this is how he writes the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing it in such a way that there's this case that's before the courts. And this case is mankind's innocent or guilt before God. And the charge is that man has deliberately rejected God. The prosecuting attorney, well, that's Paul himself. He's the one who's prosecuting this, this case. And the, the accused is all humanity. All humanity is on trial here in the defense. Well, Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that man's not actually, there's no really ex any good excuse for mankind. And, and so in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, he begins to lay out this evidence for why mankind is guilty of godlessness and guilty of wickedness. And at the end of chapter 1, it's like you have, God picks up the, the gavel and the verdict comes clear that mankind is guilty, guilty of godlessness, guilty of wickedness. And that's how chapter one ends, is with this guilty verdict, which then leads us into chapter two. And it's interesting because when Paul's dealing with this case, he, he projects different thoughts of questions that people might be having as this case is unfolding. And, and so he projects and he, he imagines people reading the evidence report of this guilty verdict of mankind. And he, he imagines people then thinking, well, well, that's not me. I mean, I, I've not committed all of those wicked things. Um, I mean, other people have. You all might have committed those things, but I haven't committed all those, those wicked things. I'm a decent, law-abiding citizen. I, I'm, a, I'm a responsible, moral person. I mean, I, I, I believe in God. Yeah, there's other people that are good, but I'm not guilty. The Apostle Paul imagines people thinking that, and that's how, if that's how you're thinking, well, chapter 2 is for you. Look at this in verse 1. It says, you, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, 
Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jews and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing them, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now, the key in this whole section comes in verse 1 with the word judgment. Everybody say judgment. judgment. And that word judgment here in verse 1, it says, you therefore have no excuse who pass judgment. That word here in this verse that, that Paul uses doesn't mean to evaluate or to analyze or to discriminate or to be discerning. That's not what he's talking about here. The word that he uses here in the original Greek language is the word krino which literally means to condemn, to sentence, to pass a verdict. And so again, I want you to imagine this courtroom scene that's playing out before all of humanity. And again, the Apostle Paul, he brings all this evidence to the court. And as a result of this, the verdict comes, and the, God picks up the gavel, and the gavel comes down, and the, um, the sentence is, is, is it's declared that mankind is guilty. And the sentence of that guilt then requires death. Now, I want, to, want you to imagine you being in, in the audience, because all of humanity is watching this. And so we here in humanity, we're all sitting watching the court play out for us. And so as soon as you see the evidence and you hear then God pronounce the verdict of guilty, all in the audience, all of humanity, you can hear kind of the shrieks and the cries and the weeping of what's going on, but you're sitting in the audience and you're thinking, I don't think that's true. And so you jump up, you come to the judge's death seat, and you grab a hold of the gavel, you're saying yourself, and you said, Judge, that can't be true. I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Randy, yeah, he's guilty because he's done all of this stuff here. And uh, Clark, he's guilty because he's done all of this stuff. But, but Judge, I'm, I'm not guilty. Well, the Apostle Paul's describing here that when we pass judgment on others, in essence, what we're doing is exactly what I just showed you. We're stepping out of this courtroom audience, and we're putting ourselves in the position of judge, where we take the gavel in our own hands, and we pronounce everybody else guilty, but we're yet innocent. And the Apostle Paul describes that when you do that, 
When you put yourself in the position of judge, you'll eventually destroy your life. And it's an interesting thing because Paul describes that God didn't create us as human beings with the capacity to be and act like God or to act as a judge. And every time that we judge or condemn others, it actually condemns us and creates death in our own hearts. And the word that describes us when we do that is self-righteous. Self-righteous. That's the term that just describes everything I just illustrated right there. I'm not so bad. I mean, I might have some weaknesses. I might have some faults in me. I mean, there might be some things there. But you know what? It's not, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not like Van. You know, Van has all of these issues here, but I, I, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm doing pretty good compared to him. That's what self-righteous means. And here in the first four verses, what Apostle Paul does, he gives us characteristics of what that self-righteous person looks like. And so I want to ask something of you here this morning as we talk about these four things. Because before you just predetermine that this is not you, I want you to open yourself to the possibility that you might see yourself in some of these things. All right, can you do that with me here? So look at these characteristics that he describes. Here's the first one. Number one, the self-righteous person accuses others and excuses himself. The self-righteous person accuses others and excuses himself. Verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And I think it's interesting because I think it's typical human nature to be unrealistic about ourselves. You know what I'm talking about? Where everybody else is guilty, but I'm not guilty. It's everybody else's fault, but it's not my fault. And as a result, what we end up doing is that we end up relabeling our own sins. In other words, I don't gossip. I'm just sharing some concerns about others. I'm not critical. I'm just discerning. I'm not lazy. I'm just laid back. I'm a little more of a mellow guy. I'm not negative. I'm just being realistic. I'm not unreliable. No, I'm just flexible. And of course, I'm not judging others. I'm just being a fruit inspector. Come on, you heard these? And so I think that's what ends up happening. What happens is so we tend to condemn these things in other people, but yet when it comes to ourselves, we're not wrong. It's just my personality. This is just the way that I am. And so a self-righteous person accuses others, but excuses himself. And here's a second characteristic that the Apostle Paul highlights, and that is number two, the self-righteous person measures other people by the wrong standard. A self-righteous person measures other people by the wrong standard. Verse two, now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So in other words, what the Apostle Paul is describing here is that the self-righteous person compares others to himself. Well, at least I'm not as bad as Eric. I mean, at least I'm better than he is, you know. So I might have things, but I, at least I'm better than he is. The problem, though, in all of this thinking is that all of us are blinded to truth. 
We're blinded to our actually what's going on in our, own, in our own lives. And so we have these blind spots. We don't really see our weakness. I don't see my weaknesses, and you don't see your weaknesses. And many times what ends up happening is that we don't see where we're at fault. We see everybody else's faults very, very clearly, but we don't see our own. And the ironic thing about all this, maybe you can um, see this, in, maybe not yourself, but at least in others. The ironic thing is that we tend to judge others in the areas that we dislike in ourselves. And so if I have a problem with pride, then I'm going to be very quick to judge others who I see pride in. If I have a problem with being lazy, I'll be very quick to judge other people who are lazy. I just think it's our human nature then to do that. Oswald Chambers, he says it this way. He says, Jesus' instructions with regard to judging others is very simply put. He says, don't. I could just stop right there, and that should be good enough, right? Jesus said, don't. Just don't do it. The average Christian is the most piercingly critical individual known. Ugh. Criticism is one of the ordinary activities of people, but in the spiritual realm, nothing is accomplished by it. The effect of criticism is the dividing up of the strengths of the one being criticized. The Holy Spirit is the only one in the proper position to criticize, and he alone is able to show what is wrong without hurting or wounding. It is impossible to enter into fellowship with God when you are in a critical mood. Criticism serves to make you harsh, vindictive and cruel and leaves you with soothing and, fl and flattering idea that you are somehow superior to others. Jesus says that as his disciples, you should cultivate a temperament that is never critical. This will not happen quickly, but must be developed over a span of time. You must constantly be aware that anything that causes you to think of yourself as a superior person, there is no escaping the penetrating search of my life by Jesus. If I see the little speck in your eye, it means that I have a plank of timber in my own. Every wrong thing that I see in you, God finds in me. Every time I judge, I condemn myself. Stop having a measuring stick for other people. There is always at least one more fact which we know nothing about in every person's situation. The first thing God does is to give us a thorough and spiritual cleaning. After that, there's no possibility of pride remaining in us. I've never met a person I could despair of or lose all hope for after discovering what lies in me apart from the grace of God. And I think that's the perspective here. The Apostle Paul here is describing is that when, we when we're critical, when we're judgmental of other people, we're just using the wrong standards. We're just seeing it wrongly. And then here's the third characteristic that he highlights, and that is number three, the self-righteous person thinks that judging others puts him in a better position. The self-righteous person thinks that by judging others, we're actually putting ourselves in a better position. Verse three says, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? I think the reason why we like to judge others is because it make us, makes us feel better. I'm not so bad, you know, because when I look at other people's lives, well, at least I'm not doing that. And so I, it puts me in a position of, be, of being superior. We, we, like, we like looking at ourselves in, in that light. But listen, folks, that's horrible logic when you stop and think about it. Because let's, let me just give you this example. Let's say that, that, you, that you and I, that we both owe the same man um, money. You owe this person $20 million, and I owe this person $10 million. But I think, well, 
Well, since you owe more money than I do, well, then I don't, I don't need to pay back that money. Does that make sense? Now, just, just because you owe more money doesn't negate the fact that I still have to repay my indebtedness. You following me? And that's what he's talking about here. So somehow we think that by judging others that we're going to put ourselves in a better position, that somehow, some way we're going to escape judgment. Listen, folks, God doesn't grade on the curve. God doesn't grade on the curve. I know that may have worked for you in high school to get you by, you know, your English class. You know, that may have worked for you, you know, in, in college to get you through your calculus class. But it doesn't work in life. God doesn't grave on, grade on the curve. And the Apostle Paul says that just by pointing out other people's sins, doesn't, it's not going to get you off the hook. My mom used to always say it this way. That, Russ, when, you, when you're judging other people, when you're being critical of other people, in essence what you're doing is that you're pointing at them. And when you point at them, you have three fingers that are pointing back at yourself, judging you. And I've always just kind of remembered, it's a great little, little reminder that when you're judging, you're pointing, you're doing this type of thing. But the reality is you've got three more that are pointing back at you. And that's what Apostle Paul is describing here. And here's the last one, number four. Apostle Paul highlights that the self-righteous person misinterprets God's blessing on his life. The self-righteous person misinterprets God's blessing on his life. Look at verse four. It says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Now, there's a key word here because the Apostle Paul, he's describing him that the self-righteous person shows contempt. And that word contempt in the original Greek language is the word katafranio, which means to treat it lightly, to have low regard for, to take it for granted. And I think what, that's what happens for so many of us is that we presume God's goodness. We take God's goodness and his blessings for granted. It's kind of this attitude, well, now everything's going great in my life, so that, that must mean that God must look at me in a right way. Everything's going smooth in my life, and so, and so God must be, I must be in on the, the good side of God here. I'm, I've got all these blessings, all these great things happening in my life, and so that must mean that the things that I'm doing are not, they're not really a big deal here because my life is being blessed. God is blessing me, and so what the self-righteous person gets inside them then is they, they think that they deserve this from God, that they deserve God's blessing. But here's the thing. Here's the mistake that a self-righteous person does because what the self-righteous person doesn't realize is that it's all because of God's grace. That's why you're blessed. It's because of, it's because of God's grace. Because if God actually gave us what we deserve, none of us would be here. It's because of God's grace that you're being blessed. And so the Apostle Paul is describing that we misinterpret God's blessing in our life. We think because everything's going great in our life that these sin issues that are in us aren't really a big deal. Because if they were a big deal, then why would God still bless me? If these things are really issues, then how is it that life tends to be going great here? But the Bible describes very clearly that God blesses us even when there is sin in our life. Even to the point, the Apostle Paul, he describes, so what, what do we do about this? How do we understand that God's grace works even in spite of my sin? But, and what this, so many people will do, and then his argument, and we'll see this a little later on, is that people will use it as an ignorant way to, well, I, I, might, I better go ahead and just keep on sinning 
because then God will keep on blessing. Because his grace will be bigger than my, my sin. And it just becomes this ludicrous you know, thinking here. But the reason why you're blessed is because of God's grace. Not because you're so good. Not because these issues are going on in your, on your life. We have to understand it's because of his grace. And I don't know about you, but this is just amazing to me. It's, it's amazing to think about this because God knows everything about me. And yet he still blesses me. God knows everything that's going on in your life, every thought, every attitude, everything you've done right, everything that you've done wrong, everything you try to hide, and every pretension that you have. God knows and sees every one of those things, and yet he's still loving towards us. He's still forgiving. I don't know about you, that just amazes me. It amazes me that God is faithful when I'm faithless. It amazes me that God doesn't treat me the way I deserve. He knows everything about me, he does, yet he doesn't treat me the way I deserve. It's because of his grace. Because how many times would God have been in his right place and it would have been a legitimate reason to strike you down with a lightning bolt? Lots of times, right? There have been lots of times that God could have just struck you down because of what you're, what you're doing. But the Apostle Paul, he's describing here that this, we need to have this attitude of knowing that we're not getting what we deserve. We're not getting what we deserve. The reason why life and blessing and things are going great in your life is because of God's grace. And until we have a revelation of our need for Jesus, we're going to keep falling into this trap thinking, all's well. This little, these sin things, these secrets aren't that big a, big a deal in my life because I'm still being blessed. Until we have a revelation of our need for Jesus, we're going to keep falling into that trap and falling into the self-righteous, I'm better than all of you types of attitudes. There's a great story in the, in the Gospels that kind of define it. Look at this in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing me. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. This woman had this revelation 
of her, her sinfulness, how far she was set apart from God. And what Jesus did in her life was so overwhelming to her that she was full of gratitude. She was consumed with gratitude. And here's the thing, folks, because when you're consumed with gratitude for what God has done for you, it keeps you from looking down on others. It keeps you from judging others. And here's the stinking reality behind all of this. And that is every single one of us here in this room are either going to be like this woman who is full of gratitude for what Jesus has done, or you're going to end up becoming like Simon, who became full of self-righteousness. Every one of those, those are really the two sides to the coin. You don't have, there's not, not another option here. The definition of self-righteousness is this, thinking oneself faultless. Thinking oneself faultless. In other words, in and of myself, I'm okay. In and of myself, I don't need anything else. I, I am in right standing with God as is, and so I don't really need God. Now, we hate thinking about that, right? And I don't know that most of us consciously think that or will admit to saying that, but what do our actions prove? Do our actions prove our dependency on him or that we're okay? I can do this on my own. That's why when you think of it, when we read the Gospels, Jesus attacked more often and more severely and more directly than any other sin, the sin of self-righteousness. He was harshest on that sin. Of any other sins, it was the people who were self-righteous, those are the ones he attacked more often and more severely and more directly than any other sin. Because when you, are, when you become self-righteous, when you see yourself as self-righteous, it causes then you to become judgmental. And when you're judgmental, in essence, we put ourselves in the role of God. We pick up the gavel, and now we become judge. That's what he's talking about here. This is the picture that he gets. And so let me ask you a question. Who has the gavel in your life? Who's holding the gavel, because there's only one, there's only one who can be judge, and it is God. It's not me, and it's not you. Only one. And that's what Paul says here in Romans chapter 2, verse 16. He says, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Only God can be judge. Only God can do this. We cannot Pick up that gavel. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul, he talks about this. And he gives us this perspective in verse 12. He says, so don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. And I think we need to hear that here this morning. That any single one of us, is it John Bradford that would say, said this in the 1500s, but for the grace of God go I. At any moment, there's a perfect storm that would cause you to sin greatly. Sin crouches at the door, looking who may, who's going to devour. That's the nature of what this is. And a perfect storm in any one of our lives can cause you to, to sin greatly. And so he's, he's describing here, so you could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. So forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God-confidence. And I think that's our action point here. When you begin to see the, in the mirror the reflection of self-righteousness, and boy, does it get in there. It's sneaky. It gets in there because you begin to think that you're okay. But it gets to seek inside of us. And I, I love and hate what Oswald Chambers described 
and what we just read here, because of any grouping of people, the people that are most liable to become critical and judgmental are people who call themselves Christians. People who are sitting in churches all over the world here on a Sunday. We become the ones who are most liable to become self-righteous. And God says, put down the gavel. Put down the gavel. You're not judged. It's only going to create death inside of your own heart. And so if you would, I want you to just close your eyes here, if you would, please. Because in each one of these chapters, the Apostle Paul begins to, you know, really begins to outline just who we are and, and what's going on in all of our individual lives. And in, and in this one, because I, I want you to just take a few minutes, because I don't want you to rush past this self-righteous thing that can get inside of, of every single one of us. And just ask the Holy Spirit just to come and expose, to reveal identify where this might have gotten inside of you, where this whole self-righteous thing might have gotten inside of you, where you might have intentionally or unintentionally rushed to the judge's seat and picked up the gavel. Maybe it's because you, you, you see it that you're accusing others, but you're realizing that you're excusing yourself. Or maybe it's because you're, you're measuring other people by this wrong standard. You're comparing yourself to others, and, and it kind of puts you... I'll get you off the hook, or maybe it's this thinking that judging others will make you look better, you know, because at least you're not as bad as, as they are. It makes you kind of feel like you're okay, or maybe it's this whole thing that we talked about, misinterpreting God's blessing in your life, that you're missing the grace, that it's just, you think that because you're doing so good and there's these sin issues really aren't a big thing, that that's, the, that, that that's okay. And you're misinterpreting God's blessing and what he's doing in your life. And so just right there where you are, just begin to allow just the presence of God to stir in your heart and in your, your own way, even just begin to repent of, of any sort of self-righteousness they may have intentionally, unintentionally kind of seeped its way into your own heart, into your own life. And the things that you're thinking about other people, the things that are going on in, in your life. And as you're letting the Holy Spirit just kind of stir that in you, just ask for the Holy Spirit as well to give you a revelation of your need for God, of your need for Jesus in your life. And maybe you've forgotten what God has done in you. Maybe you know, this has just become rote, it's just become tradition, it's become church, and, and you've forgotten. Or maybe you've not even experienced Jesus coming into your life and working and moving and transforming and delivering and saving and healing. And, and so right there where you are, just ask Jesus to come into your life, to be bigger than everything else that's been formed in your life. I want to pray with you here. So if you just pray this after me, just say this out loud. Say, Lord, I ask that you would expose any area of my life where I'm living my life as if you don't exist, where I've set myself up in any way as being self-righteous, where I'm looking down on others and judging them. God, I repent 
for my self-righteousness. I repent for judging others. And Lord, I ask that you would give me a revelation of my need for Jesus. I ask that you would give me a revelation of the consequences of my sins. And so today, as an act of my faith, I confess my need for you. Help me to let go of all confidence in myself and to cultivate a God confidence and a God dependency in every area of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go back into worship here, and, and we have communion stations set up front here for you, and, and we're not going to do that in any sort of organized way, but during worship, you're welcome to come and as part of your action step to take communion and, and just, again, re-consecrate and surrender your life to Jesus as well. The, the prayer team will be here. These are, these are our ministers that are here to, to, to pray over you, to serve you, to speak over it. If you have anything you want, to somebody to come alongside of you, to pray with you, to to hear what it is the Lord is speaking, to speak that over um, your life. These men and women will just be along the sides here to, just to pray with you. So if you would, stand to your feet here. And come on, let's dig in. Let's worship God here today. I want to ask you, if you would, just to do something again um, this morning. Because um, I always think a physical action attached to a spiritual revelation really dig something dig in, um, deep inside of you. And, uh, you know, the nature of what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2, this self-righteousness, and the thing that I was, you know, just kind of overwhelmed with this morning in reading Oswald Chambers is the, the reality that those who call themselves Christians, that this is the thing that can get in us probably more than anything else. And so... If I'm going to ask you just if you would, just if you'd drop down to your knees if you're able to physically, because I think there's a, a physical thing that happens and a spiritual thing that gets attached to it when, you know, when we kneel, because the opposite of self-righteousness is really this humility. It's this hum humility before others and this humility before God. And there's something about just getting on your knees that as uncomfortable as this is, as, as it hurts maybe even physically, as it may be even embarrassing for you, there's something about putting ourselves in that place. You know, when you think about that woman with that alabaster jar of perfume, how uncomfortable it was in that room with all of those men glaring at her but yet she was completely oblivious because she was overwhelmed with the gratitude of what Jesus had done in her life. And so, Father, I pray that even in this simple moment where we literally, not just singing about it, but literally are down on our knees once again, 
saying, God, we surrender. And God, wherever there has been this, this self-righteousness that somehow is infused into our life, where we just kind of take you for granted, that we don't see ourselves the way that we should, that we don't, we don't, we don't have the revelation of what's really going on. We don't see our own wickedness, our own godlessness, and yet we're just living our lives because it feels like we're so blessed. That God, right here in this moment, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to every single one of us individually to give us an overwhelming revelation of our need for Jesus. That what you have done in us, what you have done in our lives, God, we want to be grateful. God, we want to be thankful. And so, Lord, we do, again, we just repent. We repent of that godlessness. We repent of that wickedness in us. We repent of our self-righteousness acting like everything is okay, that we can do this on our own. And here, from this position, not of being beaten down, but of voluntarily lowering ourselves, kneeling, God, we reach out to you. That in this position of even brokenness, Lord, that you would come and breathe new life in us. God, that you would come and breathe the presence of your Holy Spirit and the reality of you working in our world today, that God, right here and right now, that you would stir that in our hearts. And so right where you are, let's just sing that chorus again, Hayden. Let's just sing this, your surrender to him. The longer I walk this journey with God, the more I realize that, that it's all about us getting in a position to where God is moving. I always think it's, I think so many of us, we try to get God to come to where we are. And we're trying to get God to do what we want to do, but it's really opposite. It's getting ourselves in a position to Step in where God is doing what he is doing. So what he's doing in your marriage. So what he's doing in your family. So what he's doing in your vocation and your, your occupation and, and uh, with your friendships. And all those, it's, it's stepping into what God is doing because he is moving. Um, and, and so the more I do this, the more I realize there's just these layers of surrender that are so incredibly necessary. And I... I shared this at the beginning of January that I think there's some shift that God wants to do. I'm convinced that there's shift. And I, I see it in my own life happening. I see it in so many of you guys' life. There's shifting that's happening in your life. But what I'm also realizing is that those things don't just come on you. You step into it. And there's a difference. You know what I'm saying? Because maybe you want something to happen and you're just kind of waiting for it to happen. Instead, let me encourage you, step into it. Step into what it is that God, step into that shift that God's wanting to do in your life. And that means that it's going to cost you something. I'm reminded of what the psalmist says, I don't want to give God something that costs me nothing. (laughs) 
Surrender is that position. And we talked about this early in January that when the when God was getting the Israelites ready to go into the promised land, he took them all these different stages, all these different places. And one of the places they took them was this weird named place called Kiryat Hata'ava, which is the death of the cra- our own cravings, the death of our own desires, the death of our own longings. And I just find that God keeps bringing it there over and over and over again. And I want to encourage you to step into it. Step into surrender. Wake up tomorrow morning and just surrender. God, I let go. I let go of my opinions. I let go of my, my ideas. I let go of my rights. I let go of any self-righteousness in me. Just let go and just have this attitude of continual surrender. And what I'm suggesting to you is that that will help you step into then where God is moving. And so if you would, why don't you grab a hold of the person's hand beside you here. I want you to bless the people around you. You can do that. Just pray for them right now if you would. Lord, we pray for the people on our left and on our right right now. God, we thank you for the people in front of us and the people behind us. We thank you for these moments that we had together. God, we're on this journey together. We're all, we're all moving forward. And Lord, all these different things that are going on specifically in these different people's lives that are surrounding us. God, we know you see every detail of it and that you are Emmanuel, that you are God right there with them in the midst of what's happening. And there is a way through it. There's an answer. So God, we pray for wisdom for the people around them. Lord, do you give them wisdom in the decisions they make? Lord, that you give them discernment and how to step into those things. God, that you would give them understanding as they try to move forward in what you have for them. And Lord, I pray for your spirit of might and your spirit of power to come upon them to be able to fulfill the purpose and call that you have on their life. That these men and women, as they go from this building, would spread your light and your love and who you are in their spheres of influence. And so, Lord, we pray that for the people all around us here today. We speak your blessing. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace, everyone. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.